Paul, the inspired writer, had these words to say in Philippians 4. He said in verse number 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That passage, of course, was written so long ago, and yet in some ways it will have a bearing, or at least a message that will match beautifully with some of the things we shall learn and reconsider tonight. I hope that if you have your Bible handy, you'll turn it to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And as we spend the next few moments investing some attention in that book, we'll be reminded of the great messages that the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve by virtue of that little three-chapter book. You may take note again that it has, has been the true for so many of these other minor prophets. The book is short. It only has 56 verses. It only has three chapters. Probably you could easily read the whole book in about five to ten minutes. And yet in it, the Holy Spirit has preserved for this much time the features characteristic of it. That means you and I know it has messages in it that are meaningful, that are vital, that are useful, and things you and I can help as you and I strive to serve the God of heaven more faithfully and more lovingly. This opening slide is one that will begin our journey by making these rather brief remarks. The book of Habakkuk reminds us that these prophetical books are powerful books. In fact, it could be argued that if the fervor and ardency of the prophets could be restored so that people in general and pulpits in particular flamed with the power and majesty of books like these, we might do a better job of convicting the world of sin reminding them that there's a God in heaven and preparing all of us more stout-heartedly to be the devoted servants that God would have us be. I think we've all been impressed. This is already the eighth installment in these minor prophets. We've looked at Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and now Habakkuk. As you can see, we'll only have four more after this one. And one by one, as we have looked at each of them, the life and times characteristic of that particular moment were meaningful, and it'll also be true by way of this lesson tonight. Two issues will take center stage in the book of Habakkuk, and it might well be that you and I have been troubled by at least parallel matters of those issues, so it'll do us well to think about how God brought before the mind of Habakkuk the answers to them, and we'll do that over the course of our study this evening. Habakkuk wrote these book, this little book somewhere around 607, perhaps 608 B.C. In other words, it was right before the Babylonian captivity was going to begin. Babylon came in 605 B.C., so we may well be at most two years. There are some who have in fact made the argument that maybe the book was written right after the captivity began in about 604. Habakkuk doesn't directly tell us a way to directly date the book, so perhaps that's right. But at the very least, we know it's right about the time that Babylon was coming. So many of these lessons have we at least have been able to mention the Assyrians and mention the Babylonians. That's going to be an issue that's going to trouble Habakkuk. We'll build that out here in chapter 1 in just a minute. Let me begin like this. The conditions during which this prophecy was descriptive were bad conditions. Things were hard. 
You can imagine what a nation would be like if this mighty, overwhelming nation was right at the doorstep and they were ready to come and forcibly take you. You realize it would be a time of fear. It would be a time of great anxiety. It would be a time of great troubling, internal, unsettled character. Not only that, the opening four verses of this book point out to us there was another issue troubling the people. Let me read, starting in verse number 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee out of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked. And judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. You can already get a feeling for some of the troubling matters that were the order of the day. Violence was rampant. Judgment was a thing of the past. Even the judge were holding people to it. Does that sound like that'd be problematic? People living by anarchy, living without the onslaught and character of a law that was respected. Remember, these were supposed to be God's people, but that isn't all. You may notice on the slide, Habakkuk cried unto God. Here was a prophet who recognized how serious this was. Here was a man of God who understood that this was a colossal mistake. You may notice in verse number 2, he cried unto God. I'm going to pause for our first lesson of the night. Habakkuk was bothered by the circumstances of the day. Have you ever thought about it that way? People who are ungodly, people you see who are unrighteous, by and large, they really don't care that much about the moral standard of the order of the day. And they see, they're not bothered by it. It's Christians whose hearts ache because of a land gone to immorality. It's Christians whose hearts yearn for a recognition of a people who would turn their attention to what they know ought to be done. Christians are the people who shed tears over an ungodly society. The people who are living in the ungodliness don't care. They're pursuing the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, as well as the lust of the eyes, and they aren't moved to have concern. But Christians know better. Christians are the ones who will pray in earnestness. And as I mentioned, they're the ones whose hearts are broken because of a society gone wrong. Habakkuk's heart was breaking. We get there a sense of here was a man who understood the law of God and he knew what it would mean. On that slide, doesn't that remind you and I how that in Hebrews chapter 11, at least a parallel issue to that is raised, where you and I as citizens and sojourners upon this place, we look for a better country. We look for one whose builder and maker is God. We understand our sojourn here is never going to be completely without its trouble. Don't you find it amazing that there are religious groups who teach this great consideration about a time when earth is going to be this utopian place no problems, no issues, no bad circumstances. It's just going to be a lovely place. You and I know the Bible doesn't teach this. This earth is going to be burned up. 
And didn't the New Testament remind us that even until the end comes, evil is going to be here. There will be those who follow and promote the matters of the devil. Evil is going to be here. You and I look for a better place than this one. For that reason, you and I notice that that slide goes on like this. We are awful close to the first issue that troubled Habakkuk's soul. You've already noticed Habakkuk made observation about how terrible things were. But you've already noticed that he cried unto God about it. God's about to give his answer. Beginning in verse number 5, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. God heard what Habakkuk prayed, and God said, I am going to answer. It may well be that I haven't answered as quickly as you wanted, and it may well be that my answer shall not exactly be what you want, but I will answer. Because look at the next verse. For lo, I, that I refers to God, I will raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. I suspect Habakkuk didn't dream about that kind of an answer. He had prayed to God that people might turn and not live this violent, ungodly way. And God says, I have heard your plea, and here's my answer. I'm going to bring the Chaldean nation. They're going to conquer you. They're going to overwhelm you. They're going to haul off people to captivity. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. I suspect that's not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. So much so that I thought that we would use that as our second lesson of the night. It's on this slide that's now before you. These Chaldeans were going to come with strength. They were going to come with invincibility. They were going to come with a great deal of power, and Judah was not going to be able to defeat them. God had already proclaimed that through Jeremiah. He had already set it forth through some of the other minor prophets we have seen. Now to Habakkuk, he says, they are coming. And they are going to overwhelm you. They are going to, in fact, in great disaster, crush you. At this point, that raises this observation. I entitled it, as you can see on the slide, What Might Be Said About Our Prayers Unto God. Sometimes God's answer to our prayers is not what we prayed, or at least not what we had in mind. Have you ever been in a circumstance where maybe with intrigue and with a great deal of interest you prayed for something, and maybe it did not come to pass? And even if it did, it didn't come to pass at all the way you envisioned it. There are some who would accuse God of being rather unloving in cases like that, that He would be rather insensitive, that He would be somewhat uncaring, don't you know that Habakkuk could have made that allegation? God, how could you raise up these people? They are more ungodly than your people. How could you allow them to overwhelm, to crush, and to in fact kill so many of your people? Although the people of Israel are ungodly, the Chaldeans are even worse. Although the people of Israel have begun to live unrighteously, the Babylonians are even worse. How could you do this? It's worth a consideration, isn't it? 
you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, doesn't it remind us that we need to be mindful that God is in heaven and we are not. That He is infinite in His wisdom and we are not. Psalm 147 verse 5 continues to say, Thy understanding is infinite. In Isaiah 60 or 55 verses 8 and 9, we learn and read so beautifully that God's ways are far higher than ours, that His thoughts are far higher than ours, and when He provides answer, we need by faith to recognize that His way, His truth, His decision, His verdict will always be that which is right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That question posed rhetorically in Genesis 18.25 still reminds us that Habakkuk wrestled with this. I strongly suspect that many of us have as well. When someone very close to you, someone for whom you've prayed for healing, and then they pass away. Some circumstance in life that develops, and you pray with such fervor and ardency, and yet it develops just as badly as you feared it would. Those are moments when one's faith is tested. There are times like that when no doubt circumstances challenge us to recognize that the God that we serve does hear. He does listen. May I say that Habakkuk was challenged this way. We find in chapter 1 that his faith was shaken a bit when God told him, I'm bringing the Chaldeans. You better get ready. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, isn't this the essence of our faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen in the words of Hebrews 11.1. 1. We're reminded so often that it is a trust in God that even though things are not that which we would have preferred, we understand that even though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. To borrow the words of Job 13.15. So far, these two lessons have been intriguing, and now I suppose we can only wonder, how did Habakkuk respond when God informed him that the Chaldeans were going to be the answer? I would say that as we do all of that, there's something about chapter 2, verse number 4. We will leap over there for a moment and then revisit chapter number 1. Habakkuk 2, verse 4, in many ways, is the cardinal verse in the entire book of Habakkuk, and some would argue a cardinal verse in all the Old Testament. It probably is going to sound very familiar. Brother Cale read it earlier. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That's quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times. I've listed for you at the bottom of, this, of that previous slide wherein those places occur. One of them is in Romans 1.17. One of them is found in the Galatian letter. One of them, finally, is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. All those places in which that passage is quoted in the New Testament are greatly symbolic and greatly meaningful in that there are powerful messages about your faith and mine. The just shall live by faith. The just doesn't live by reason. Reason is valuable and it can be important. But you and I don't live primarily by it. We live by thus saith the Lord. If God said it, that's enough. 
We will accept it, believe it, and live in accordance to it. That's what faith is. The just shall live by faith. No wonder that connection. Let's revisit chapter 1 briefly. And now note this. When God told Habakkuk that the Chaldeans were going to be the ones coming and that that was the answer to the prayer, may I point out verse number 12? It says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God? Mine holy one, shall not we die? O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he? Do you see the question? Here Habakkuk is asking God, I just at this time don't see how you can do this. You're going to let this wicked nation crush your people, who though bad they are, they at least are better than the Chaldeans. And so verse number 14 continues like this, And makest men as the fishers of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. At this point, could I say, we still haven't appreciated how Habakkuk is going to deal with this. But would you turn the page into chapter 2? I'll read the first two verses of the chapter. And I believe then we shall have our first answer. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Habakkuk said, I will wait and I will watch. There's a great lesson in that for all of us. May we never run ahead of God. May we never suppose that we are wiser than he and that we will pursue our own course. Habakkuk said, I will wait and see what the developments in light of the revelation of God shall be. Are you and I ready to wait upon the Lord? In Psalm 27, verse 14, that reminder is shouted so loudly, Wait upon the Lord. Trust always in Him. But did you note verse number 2? God answered him. And this is what the God of heaven declared. Habakkuk, write the vision. Write down what you've seen and what I've revealed to you. Write it down, but not only write it, he said, make it plain upon tables that those who run may read it, or rather that those that read it may run. There's a great lesson there about the understandability and the appreciation that goes with the Word of God. You and I all know that there have been quite a few allegations through the years that God's Word isn't understandable, that you have to have help to understand it, and some even declare you need the specific supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to imbue each person with a capacity to understand it. Now, you and I know that's not so. God wrote His Word in such a way He intended to be understood. 
He told Habakkuk, you make it so plain as you write it that those who read it will run. They will leap into action at once. They will proceed to understand the Chaldeans are on the doorstep and they will act in light of what has been revealed. Habakkuk, make it plain. God told something like that to Paul in Ephesians 3, 4. Didn't Paul write on that occasion to those Ephesians, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery. They, you see, were to understand that which Paul had written. Today, aren't we thankful for the understandability of the Word of God, the message it reveals, and the way you and I can appreciate it? You may notice as you close that slide with me, that we do notice in chapter number 2 that God did go on to tell Habakkuk this. It's true, he told Habakkuk, these Chaldeans are going to destroy my people, but I want you to know that they also will be judged. Those Chaldeans, they're not getting off, quote, scot-free. I shall judge them at the right time and at the right way. And you and I know what happened. The empire that you and I call the Babylonian one, it only existed 68 years. You ever thought about that? The United States of America is now well over 240 years old, at least judging from 1776 onward. As great as Babylonia was, lasted only 68 years. She rose to prominence, but just like God declared to Habakkuk when her time was up, she was overwhelmed by the Medes and Persians in 539 B.C. And that was the end of Babylonia. You and I need to appreciate, do we not, that our God rules in the kingdoms of men. And just as surely as He raised up the Chaldeans, when her time was finished, God judged her. And she too became a part of the dustbin of history. You may notice one last thing on the slide. Chapter number 2 lists a number of the items of which the Chaldeans were guilty. And for these things God judged her. Without reading all the chapter, could I just highlight a few of them? They were known for their discontent. That included violence. They were known for their idolatry. They were known for the features of their covetousness. They were known, you see, for the way in which they cruelly overwhelmed people. And they took from them by thievery, by robbery and otherwise, and they slew people. Even babies. Doesn't that sound a little bit like modern-day America, at least in some ways? It's a sad thing to recognize that the tragedy that was brought upon these people for the sins listed in chapter number 2 is a reminder, you see, that our God is mindful of the activities of the human family. He knows what we're doing, and He knows the mindset that's behind it as well. As you come near the close of chapter number 2, you notice what seems to me one of the key verses of the book. It's the last verse of chapter 2. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. An innocent reminder in the midst of that book, regardless how bad things become when these Chaldeans arrive, and it wasn't going to be long, regardless of the tragedy that goes about the death and the other things that they would bring. Don't you ever forget, the Lord is in His holy temple. Be silent before Him. 
Just hush, listen to Him, and do what He says. The human family's often made mistakes in that regard, haven't we? We think we know as much as God. We think that we can offer our advice to Him. That's never worked well. It shall never work well. What we need to do, of course, is just humbly and very devotedly follow what the God of heaven has to say. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. As we close that particular slide and transition on to the next one, we come to what may be regarded as Habakkuk's second issue. We've already seen the first one having to do with God's choice of allowing these Chaldeans to come. But you see, there are other matters raised through the book. This might be a good time for me to interject the following. Thankfully, Habakkuk, by the time we end the book, is going to be well apprised of God's solution, and he will be quite thankful for it. As you can see on that slide before you, we do learn something fantastic about the sovereignty of God and the nature of His judgment. I stated it in these words. So often in the Bible we're reminded that God is in control. There have been times when the human family may question or doubt that. But we have seen His movement through history. We've seen that with the Old Testament so many times. Isn't it true that even the book of Revelation portrays that in that day and time, something quite like that was still going to be the case? But for right now, I've just shared with you a few verses beginning with Psalm 33 that highlighted to us that as far as the creation itself and all things ever since, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns it. It belongs to Him. And He thus has control over what takes place. Now, it's certainly true that He allows an element of domain to the human family we can make our choices and we can live in the way that He would permit us to. And sometimes those choices are very ungodly. Sometimes those choices are quite filled with unrighteousness. It doesn't change the fact, though, that our God understands that which we call the future. That second set of verses I've asked you to notice is a reminder from Deuteronomy 32.4 that our God is always faithful. He is a God of faithfulness. Moses took great consideration of that truth, and you and I today are still greatly reminded of it as well. One of the things we can certainly learn from chapter 2, sin is always punished. I realize that the human family, sometimes we begin to think we can get away with things. Maybe that God doesn't see us. I surely hope that in our better moments we understand that isn't so. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. Hebrews 4.13 writes it this way, Neither is there salvation in any other. For our God is such that His eyes are in every place, beholding, of course, that which would be yours and mine. Every creature is naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Is it any wonder in those lights that in the day of Habakkuk, Habakkuk was thus challenged to recognize sin is punished. God's people were guilty of sin, and the Chaldeans were going to be the thoroughfare, the agency by which they would be punished. Doesn't it remind us somewhat of Jeremiah 3.25? 
we lie down in our shame. And our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Sin is shameful. It's just shameful. And so God's people needed to be punished, and the Chaldeans were going to bring about that punishment. And they were coming with the blessing of God. That is it all. As you close that slide with me, it only prompts us to ponder, what about chapter 3? So far, we've seen the issues that Habakkuk raised. Aren't you thankful that Habakkuk in chapter 3 brings us full circle, and he recognizes and realizes that that which has been the issue in his mind all along, once he recognizes the greatness and the nature of God, all of that settled into nothingness. Let's start chapter 3 like this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. Habakkuk said, God, I have heard. Revive your work. He was no longer questioning. He was recognizing in submission that God's way was right and that this punishment then upon first God's people and then the Chaldeans was that which was in order. In the verses that follow that, he praises God for His greatness, for His choice, for His decision, and for the fact He's always right. And along the presentation, he makes mention of even some previous Old Testament matters. Along the way, may I direct your attention to verse 11? The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. And that takes us back to Joshua, the 10th chapter. When in the days of Joshua, the power of our God was sufficiently strong that for an entire day, the sun and moon didn't move in the sky. God did that. That's the same God who now was going to raise the Chaldeans and who was going to punish those same Chaldeans when, of course, the time and the spacing was right. As you journey forward in chapter number 3, you arrive at what seems, again, to me to be a critical passage. It is the last three verses in the book. I'd like to read them, perhaps a bit slowly, and emphasize a few of the features we encounter. Would you listen, then, to what Habakkuk finally has to say? Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive tree shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation." The unshakable confidence that Habakkuk now voiced, the unshakable faith that he now exhibited, would lead me to perhaps paraphrase it like this. You and I could perhaps say, although the cupboard is empty and the garden has been destroyed, although I've lost my job, and I see at this point no immediate remedy, Yet I will rejoice, and I'll joy in the God of my salvation, and I'll never lose sight of the fact of His greatness and what He has done for me in the past and what He shall do for me in times that are yet to come. 
Though Habakkuk had a degree of question back in chapter 1, he has no question now. The nature of God's provision, the certainty of God's declaration has satisfied him to that point. So now look at verse 19. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds' feet, and He will make me to walk upon mine high places. Habakkuk now says, The strength, any strength that I have is due to Him. He is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds' feet. I shall be able to pursue. I shall be able to proceed. It's all due to the God of heaven. And you'll notice it ends with these words, To the chief singer upon my stringed instruments. This last chapter, he basically sat to music. And he played. You'll notice he wrote a song, if you please. You and I might remember that that's really what Habakkuk chapter 3 is. It is a song Habakkuk wrote in answer to what he came to understand about the nature of trust, the nature of faith, and the nature of the God of heaven. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all thy ways, and He shall direct thy paths. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. As you and I close this particular lesson, it's certainly fair to say that to some extent this particular little book is somewhat a sequel to the book of Nahum. And we learned two weeks ago that Nahum was written particularly with regard to the destruction of Assyria. You'll notice Babylon was going to be destroyed too. Now those two events happened a number of years apart, but they were both certain because God decreed it. And they were both certain because it was the will of the God of heaven. Somewhat interestingly, as you and I close our lesson tonight on Habakkuk, don't you find it intriguing that in this book God has said, My people are going to Babylon. If you wish to think about what had transpired a number of centuries earlier, that was the very place that God took Abraham out of. And now it's the very place Abraham's seed are going back to. Don't you find that interesting? As that took place, we close the book of Habakkuk tonight. And we do so by bringing us to a slide of conclusion. We've learned six lessons along the way. If we, as we have looked at these three little chapters in the book, and as we've looked at each one of them, we have been encouraged, we've been challenged, and may I say, when you and I have questions that arise in our heart, allow the Word of God to provide the answer so that you can again develop that unshakable trust, that confidence in God that no matter what, everything will be okay. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a faithful Christian, then all is not well. If you've reached that age of knowing wrong from right, and to this point you have kept the Lord at bay, don't you want to rush to His side, knowing that in His church, in His body, there is safety, there's security, there's protection. Tonight we'd like to offer the Lord's invitation. If in that state of life, maybe one time a faithful Christian, but you haven't become or haven't lived that way of late, please remember that just as we've learned in Habakkuk, there could be difficult matters awaiting in your life. Don't you want the strength of the Lord there at your disposal? 
That's one of the lessons we learn about the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3. They needed the Lord's strength. You and I, if we're not a Christian, we don't have it. Tonight, we'd like to offer the invitation then in this way. If you are an erring child of God, come back to your first love. Do that by way of confession. Do that by way of repentance. And we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. If you're not a child of God, having never become one, exhibit your faith. And do that as you make confession upon your repentance. And then baptism, the Lord will wash your sins away. Tonight, as we close this study of Habakkuk, we would like to, in fact, make offer of assistance to anyone in whom we can help at this time. Brother Larry's chosen this song of encouragement. If anyone would wish to come at this moment, why not now? While together we stand and sing.